0: While supplies last. Visit plantstrong.com today. Welcome to this special mini episode of the Plant Strong podcast. What I want to do right now is read to you all the opening chapter of my first book, The Engine 2 Diet, that came out on February 25th, 2009. And I open up the book with one of the worst Fires that I encountered in my 12 years as an Austin firefighter. So here you go. It's just a couple minutes. The evening of January 5th, 2000 was bitterly cold, a night no one in the Austin Fire Department will soon forget. At the time, I was working at Central Station, the city's largest. Central was called the Animal House because we firefighters were notorious for our bizarre antics from launching water balloons at passerbyers from the second-story rooftop to breaking rookies down until they burst into tears. There were no boundaries and no barriers. The weather was bad when we went to bed in the firehouse dorm that night, but by early morning, it was worse. A freezing rain was falling and temperatures were heading towards record lows. Then, at 4.20 a.m., a heavy box alarm sounded. The word box refers to a home. A regular box alarm signals that a single family house is on fire, but when a heavy box alarm sounds, it means a fire at a larger building, such as an apartment complex. Just as at the start of an athletic competition, all my senses went into overdrive. My heart rate jumped, my stomach churned, my mind raced. Normally, I'd leap right out of bed, jump into my bunker pants, and pull up my suspenders. But because I was going to be driving this shift, I had only enough time to stumble into my station pants and cotton shirt before sliding down the 18-foot brass fire pole. I was preparing for the worst. The real burners generally occur between midnight and 6 a.m. when people have gone to sleep, but a stovetop is left burning, an electrical uh, wire shorts out, or a smoldering cigarette butt ignites. The fire turned out to be at the Lakeshore Apartments, two and a half miles from the station. Sirens blaring, we pulled up to the scene, the third engine in. Each arriving engine has a specific duty. The first engine attacks the fire, the second backs up the first, and the third hooks up to a hydrant to bring an unlimited supply of water to the first. Just as we were arriving, we heard a radio message from Engine 22 announcing that they had put out the fire. For a moment, we relaxed. And from where we stood, looking up at the building's second floor balcony, the problem seemed to be nothing more than a little hibachi fire. Then my good friend, fellow Engine 1 firefighter, Josh Miller said, Rip, put your bunker gear on. I didn't understand why he told me that because things seemed to be under control. Perhaps he'd had a premonition. All firefighters have them. So I listened scuttled around to the driver's side compartment, and donned my full gear. Sure enough, moments later, that little fire exploded into an enormous flame, larger than I had ever seen. They climbed up the side of the building, curled onto its top, and engulfed the roof. Scared and nervous, I approached the fire, my pulse pounding. The next few minutes were a blur. Time warps under severe pressure. I remember that a firefighter named Alfonso Dellard, known as Axe, stepped in in front of me. And as he did, I heard the kind of blood-curdling screams that you only hear in the movies. Help me, I'm burning up. I wasn't sure I'd heard correctly, but then the cry came again. Help me, I'm burning. I sensed this scream was coming from the apartment with the balcony, but how could someone still be alive inside that inferno? The flames were rising even higher and their radiant heat was overwhelming, even from 200 feet away. Axe and I were the only ones who heard the screams. Axe sprang into action. He put on his face piece, went on air. We all carry bottles supplying 45 minutes of air so we can breathe during the worst fires. He grabbed a rack line, which is a pre-connected 200 foot hose, and then scrambled up a ladder. Right behind Axe, I also went on air then steadied the ladder for him, although he was too preoccupied to realize that I was watching his every move. Axe reached the window's edge, opened the hose and sprayed torrents of water into the left side of the apartment, the heart of the flames. Then he hung the hose's nozzle on the ladder's top rung and entered the window, disappearing into the inferno. All I could think was, I have to protect him. So I climbed the ladder and looked in the window. I felt as if I was peering at a secret passage into hell. A friend of mine once served as the medical director at Yosemite National Park, where a few years ago, a lunatic had beheaded several women. My friend went out to locate the victims, but all he found was one headless body. At that point, his reality changed. He'd come to believe in true evil. That's how I felt then, seeing the fiery monster raging, laughing at us, I'm loving this and you guys are screwed. Because it was difficult to see, I had no idea who was trapped inside the apartment. Later, we discovered it was Fire Captain John Butts. John belonged to the first arriving ladder company, which was responsible for search and rescue. John had entered the apartment with his crew, but as they had forgotten to bring a fan along to ventilate the room, he'd sent them back to get it and had gone in alone even though we're always supposed to bring a partner and a charged hose line, one that holds water at the appropriate pressure. Before John had had time to exit the room that he was investigating, the living room next door flashed, which means anything that reaches a thousand degrees or higher will burst into flame. If John had been inside, he would have died on the spot. Instead, the explosion threw him to the ground where he lay paralyzed and could only scream for help. The flames and the smoke were so dense that Axe couldn't find John until he spotted his flashlight at the end of the bed. As Axe knelt down and asked, can you make it to the window? John whispered, I'll do what I can. Axe turned around, trying to orient himself amid the smoke and the flames. At that moment, I entered through the window, waving my arms. Axe saw my silhouette and headed for it. Later, he called me his angel. The distance from the floor to the bottom edge of the window was four feet. So the two of us began struggling to raise John's limp 300-pound body up and over the sill. John weighed about 225 pounds, but he was also wearing 75 pounds of equipment. Meanwhile, the freezing rain was still falling and the smoke was impairing our vision. I slipped on the ladder, John's helmet fell off, and we still couldn't pull his limp body past the windowsill. Finally, we got the front half of his body to dangle over the sill, and Axe yelled, do you have him? I got him, I yelled back, yanking John as best I could over and out the window so I could lower him. At this point, I wasn't sure if he was still alive. I bear-hugged the ladder with my left arm, lowered John until my right arm was fully extended, and then let him fall. He dropped 18 feet to the ground, missing an enormous air conditioning unit by inches. Next, I climbed back up the ladder, looking for Axe, who, in the confusion, I mistook for my friend Josh Miller. At this point, I was so befuddled I didn't know who was who, but I was not going anywhere, without the other firefighter. And because I was convinced that he was inside, I was about to re-enter the room. Then something inside me said, look down and see what's on the ground. I did, and lying 18 feet below were both John Butts and Axe. Their bodies were smoking. At this point, I had no idea how Axe had landed there. I later learned that he was so hot and suffering from such severe injuries that to save his own life, he had dived over the ladder and fallen to the ground. I had been so busy wrestling with John's body that I didn't see him. I made my way down the ladder to Axe and John. Incredibly, both were still conscious. Axe had three-degree burns to his calf, hands, and neck. John was not as lucky. Third-degree burns covered close to 70% of his body. People seldom live if more than 65% of the body. Is burned. Finally, the fire was contained. John was taken by ambulance to Brackenridge Hospital and then airlifted to Brooks Army Burn Center in San Antonio, Texas, where he spent almost a year in recovery. Shortly afterward, he was promoted from captain to battalion chief. He is lucky to be alive and he knows it. Although two later sweeps of the apartment revealed no other victims, the third sweep found a man dead in the bathtub. The shower curtain had melted over his body, which was barely recognizable as human. The apartment had been his, and his little hibachi had caused the deadly blaze. That fire's fury spooked me to the core. In the short time that all these events took place, I realized how fleeting our time on earth is. Since that night, I've appreciated the importance of my job, as well as the other firefighters with whom I work, more than ever before. I never take a single shift for granted. And after 24 hours, when we're relieved by the next crew, I heave a sigh of relief knowing that we're all going home safe. That terrible fire also confirmed my belief that we can't take anything for granted, especially our health. Obviously, preventing and staying away from fire is one way to stay healthy, but the most basic, profound and powerful way to take care of your health on a day-to-day basis is to eat a healthy plant-based diet. This regimen is the best way to fight the dangerous fires raging inside us, fires that create all the chronic Western ailments, including heart attacks, stroke, cancer, Alzheimer's disease, and diabetes. That's why I created the Engine 2 diet and why I wrote this book.